It demands that we tell sinners the whole truth. We will not go quietly into the night. Christian Cornerstone Podcast. Welcome, welcome everybody to the first study um, that we're doing over Genesis. First off, I want to welcome you back to another episode provided by the Christian Cornerstone uh, Ministry Project. Uh, and as I said, we're going over Genesis uh, today, and this is the first uh, first study that we're doing. So we'll be covering Genesis one. And uh, uh, before we get into this, you know, I'd like to also remind you guys to consider becoming a financial supporter of this ministry. Your financial contributions will help to offset the costs uh, that we have existing at this point in time, and it'll also help to go towards the further establishment of this ministry. Um, you'll take help help us uh, take care of our license websites, uh, staffing, and other various resources uh, that we would like to uh, provide you. So I want to encourage you to do that. And by, by subscribing to us financially, you'll, you know, get, you'll be signed up for a newsletter, currently working on getting that set up, as well as some additional um, incentives that are already there. So this is, in fact, keep in mind, this is a form of a membership. And we want to not just get your support, but we also want to give back to you as well. Also, you can uh, support us by liking and subscribing to our uh, YouTube channel, our Facebook page, and even our podcast channel at anchor.fm slash christian-cornerstone. So uh, those are some options there. And I would actually strongly encourage you to, to uh, subscribe to the podcast, the audio podcast. A lot of people don't like watching videos for an hour online. So Sometimes they'll uh, prefer to simply listen to it on their phone or while they're out for a run. So I would encourage you to do that. Subscribe to a podcast channel. You can look us up on any popular podcast app uh, that you have that you would prefer. And uh, you can just look in, look us up by going to Christian Cornerstone. And you should find our logo. You can find us and then click that subscribe button. Now, uh, I chose Genesis. Uh, one, it is a very favorable book of mine. And... Uh, as far as memory serves, I don't have anything up there for Genesis, so I was like, you know, let's start here. And uh, we just, uh, as of this recording, we've just gotten done with a scholastic study, what I would call a scholastic study, um, over world religions and how they differ from the Christian faith. So I wanted to uh, get back into the scripture uh, so that way we can provide something uh, for the rest of the audience that is not uh, taking these lessons. Genesis, as I said, is very important, and it's also one of huge, huge controversies among the people today. Specifically, the creation account of Genesis, we argue that uh, we have a lot of arguments uh, that we have uh, relating to this, and... Uh, you know, this, these issues we have would come in, in a variety of different ways. And, you know, a couple of the ways in which they would come uh, include the idea, which is, this is actually a very popular one. Um, thankfully, I haven't heard it in a while, uh, but it, it is constantly on my mind. Uh, there was a, a ministry or a so-called ministry uh, I was a part of years ago, which made this argument. And I've, I've shared this, lo this logic in the past. It's probably one of my favorite favorite ones, 
um, and probably one of the best ones that I've personally come across with in a defense for this. Now, some of these arguments here that include that we include with this, um, the first one here is that it doesn't matter what we believe. What matters is that cr the creation account did happen. How it happened, that's irrelevant. But we must recognize that there was a, a force behind it, a driving force that we, the believers, call God, Yahweh, Adonai, uh, Elohim, whatever other terminology you would like to go with. This is what we call him. And uh, some believers, we would say that this does not matter. Now, if they are right to a certain point, uh, specifically what an individual believes, whether you believe in young earth, whether you believe in old earth, that specifically alone is not going to hinder your salvation. Just because you believe the earth is millions of years old does not mean you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. Just because you believe that earth is a uh, young earth creation does not mean that you're not a believer of Jesus Christ. However, it does not mean that you do not have salvation. It simply means that there's a uh, an errored understanding. Now, we can argue this all day, but I don't want to... Uh, I, well, we're going to be arguing this all day. We're, uh, we're doing our first lesson here. Um, first, again, make that claim. You're right. It doesn't matter what we specifically believe, because that's not going to hinder our salvation. However, one of the important pieces that we need to take into consideration if we were to take this argument that it doesn't matter, but simply that we believe that it happened. And if we were to say that, you know, we, we shouldn't take or we, 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 yeah, we shouldn't take uh, Genesis 1, uh, the creation account, literally, then that principal idea can be justified throughout the remaining scripture. It doesn't matter that there was a global flood or that it was a, a localized flood. It doesn't matter um, if Egypt was truly destroyed and, and, and uh, the Red Sea took, took out the Egyptians or the plagues exactly happened. Um, the fall of the temple. Uh, it doesn't matter if that happened, but simply that a wall fell down. But the most important piece here, if we take this as it doesn't matter that it, or how it happened, but that it did happen, then we can take that very same argument. We take it with the very first book, the very first chapter, the very first words of the Bible. Then we can also apply this to anything else that's in the middle. Specifically the cross. If it doesn't matter what we believe and that it's, uh, what we simply believe that it happened, then we could even justify it and claim that uh, the Islamic faith might have it right. They don't believe Jesus truly died on the cross, but that it was uh, Judas, that the, the act was really um, uh, acted out. They believe that um, it was Judas who died on the cross, and it, it was not Jesus. Jesus was, in fact, still alive. Um, and then you've got a couple other analogies from other different beliefs about it. So we, if we take the, like I said, if we take the same thing with uh, creation, that it does not matter how it happened, but that it did happen, we can take the same thing with, cre with the cross. It doesn't matter that, the cr that Jesus died on the cross or how he died on the cross or who it truly was, but simply that somebody did, in fact, die on the cross for the sins. 
the sins of who? That's the big question. And furthermore, it doesn't matter that Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter if Jesus Christ existed. It doesn't matter if he is a deity. It doesn't matter if he is God. It doesn't matter if he's in flesh and he has super, uh, supernatural abilities. But what matters is that he truly came to earth. Or that he truly existed in manhood. Now if we take that principle and apply it to Christ himself, that it does not matter, then we can go so far as to say that if you simply believe that he was a man, and just a man, and not deity, but he still died on the cross, then that's okay. But the problem is, no man can die for the sins of an entire world. It takes its divine, spotless lamb to die on the cross, to take the sins of all of mankind, or of all of the elect specifically. It takes one man, one God, to do that. Another argument that we have here comes down with the idea that the days should not be taken literally. The word day in, uh, in Hebrew is yom, if I'm pronouncing that right. I don't have that specifically written down. Uh, but the day is yom, and it can be used to emphasize um, a day period or a day age. Uh, for example, we use this in our terminology, in our vocabulary, when we say, well, those were the days. Oh, you remember back in the day when we did this? Or back in my father's day, my grandfather's day, or... Or a day will come, and when we say that, or even the last days, we're talking about a period of time. And, you know, in different measurements, whether it be 24 hours, a week, a couple years, a generation. We refer to it as a day period. And um, likewise, it is, in fact, used like that within the scriptures. However, there's a problem with this. The problem here is that they say the day should not be taken literally. Day itself is a measurement of time, whether it be 24 hours, weeks, years, generations, whatever it is. It is a measure of time. And while the word day might have multiple different usages within the scripture, we have another, we have another measurement of time here as well. When we look at the Genesis 1 account of creation, what we find here is that there was also evening and there was also morning. Both these terms are also used in reference to a measurement of time or the break of a period of time, you know, the transition of a period of time. Same, same type of usage as we would have with the word day. However, when we look in the Hebrew, the uh, terminology, the usage uh, for evening, Erev, that's E-H, um, it's, it's spelled E-R-E-B, but it's pronounced Erev, with a V sound for the B. And uh, the usage for evening, when you go back to the Hebrew, is none other than the usage, this is all it has, it has evening, it has sunset, and it has night. So my question here, how exactly can this be referring to a day age? Furthermore, we also have morning 
or otherwise Bokur, which refers to, and this is in the Hebrew, uh, the usage for morning is daybreak. It is the end of night. It is the coming of daylight, or it is the next day. Again, this is a measurement, a transition period from one day to another. There is no other usage of evening and morning, no other kind of usage other than the separation from daylight to nighttime. So, with that being said, we cannot take the word day, and specifically, we cannot take the day Genesis to mean a, a, a day period. We must take it as a literal 24-hour days. Why? Because, one, it says day, two, it says evening, and three, it says morning. Another argument would say, well, it says that God created the heavens and the earth. And by the way, before we continue on in this, I'd also like to make known this this uh, study is going to be kind of unique. We're, we're just kind of going over this uh, scientifically. Uh, and then next week, or in our next lesson, uh, we will begin going uh, into the scriptures a little bit more in depth. But the other argument says that it says that God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't say that God created the rest of the universe. It doesn't say that God created the cosmos or any other element, but that simply God created the heavens, and that's plural, that'd be the sky, that'd be the stars, that'd be the celestial realm. He created the heavens and the earth. It says just the earth. But number one, there's three usages in which we have to remember three heavens we see the word heaven being plural let me see if i can't get that pointer up we have an s at the end of heavens so that means that there's more than one that is being created it also means that it's not just one uh, obviously the, the plural the pluralization but it, it does mean that there is or all of the heavens were created uh, this does refer to the skies. It does, or the, the usage of the heavens. This is uh, referring to the skies. This is referring to the stars. This is referring to the celestial realm. However, the sky as we know it has not come to, into existence until the first day, second day. And uh, let me double check. I believe that's the second day. Second day. It's the second day. Okay, so uh, we have that. And then another issue that we have with this is that in the Hebrew, there is no word for universe. And I think the closest in which we would get to would be the heavens. So God did, in fact, create the heavens and the earth. Now, we could also throw in the idea that, well, you know, this could be a, um, well, actually, we're going to get into that here in a minute. No, we're not. We're going to get into that right now. We could also say, it's like, well, this... This piece, this, this section of Genesis, from uh, Genesis 1 through 2, is really just a declaration. And it reads here, it says, In the beginning that God created the heavens and the earth. That's in verse 1. The earth was without form, it was without void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the earth. That's simply a declaration, absolutely. That is. And so they say that there's a gap theory. And this gap theory comes in between... Uh, episode, or 
chapters verse one, verse two. I'm sorry, I'm getting my words mixed up. Verse two and verse three. However, before we get into that, one of the things I failed to uh, prepare for, I wanted to share with you. We have the laws of thermodynamics here. I'm not exactly sure the science behind it or which law it is or if it's all of the laws. But we have here, um, we have the that there's a God and in the beginning, there's time. God created, there's the power, the force behind it. The heavens and the earth, there's matter. The earth was without form, it was void. Darkness hovered over the face of the deep. I'm sorry, the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered. There's the movement or the, or the, the motion over the face of the waters. So there's some of the laws there of creation that you have to have something, um, some driving force behind this. And that is, in fact, God. From the beginning of our known time, God has existed. And in the beginning of our known time, God created. He's already existed. He's outside of time. He has the power and much like we, we have power. You, you get a Lego set, and you have the power outside of the confines of Legos to make more, to add more. And you don't just have to use the Legos. You can use other sources to create something. But within the confines of that universe, this is what uh, we have to use matter that exists. God doesn't. And now it's interesting enough, he's not even going off and taking, you know, he's not just messing with the Legos and going off and grabbing Legos from some other cosmic universe and putting them here. He's voicing this into existence. But we say here that there's a gap theory. The gap theory, I don't have a lot of information for you on this. I am not a scientist, but the ultimate idea is that there is a measurement of time in between verse 2 and verse 3 that existed but yet there's no reason to suggest that there is no day that is referring to much like we use to justify the rest of the text and there is no evening and there is no morning to transition anything so can we say that this is a measurement of time i don't really think so i think it is simply a declaration that in the beginning god created and in the beginning there the, the earth itself was without form it was a uh, void darkness was over and the Spirit of God hovered over the earth. And the more I read this, the more I really don't even understand it. Uh, I, I try to comprehend what it may have looked like, but I wasn't there at the beginning of time. One of the things, uh, the gap theory itself really essentially is null and void. And I don't want to get too much into that. Uh, that's really all I can tell you. Again, I'm no scientist. However, there's another argument that comes into play is that Genesis itself was written to be poetic. However, this again, you know, when we say this is poetic, so it should it should not be taken literally. Um, poet poet uh, poems are metaphorical and not always literal. So therefore, we can justify the argument that. Um, Genesis might not be a literal six days of creation. However, there's another problem with this. The problem with this idea is that poems can be taken literally. Biblically speaking, poetry isn't just metaphorical. Poetry is also used as a means to stress or to exalt 
the event or, the, or, or people or a significant idea. So it doesn't mean that because it's written poetically that it's not literal, but simply that the writer really wanted to stress and to emphasize the, the, what is going on here. And I think that's really why, and it's a very important thing. I think, you know, they believed it to be important. And not only that, but as Moses is writing this uh, text, he's really getting a, a huge, a, a better understanding of what it truly means. That God created the universe and the value behind that. And I personally think uh, that is why it is written in a poetic form. Now, another aspect in which we have here would be that geology affirms six days. I'm sorry, not geology, genealogy. Genealogy affirms this. Now, before we get into this, there's a couple different ways I found uh, within my research, uh, my preparation. And I got I to gotta admit, in my own personal research, as I was going over this, as I was preparing these notes, I've really found that... Um, the creation account really has a, a, a bigger significance. It, it has more importance and more intimacy, more relational than I personally would have first um, thought, what I would have viewed. So, and I want us to look at that as well as we get into this study, as we continue on in this. I want us to look at it as that, and I, I to, to really try to grasp the significance and the importance behind this. But the options and referring to, we have genealogies that affirm six days of creation. If you were to take the genealogies from Adam all the way up to Jesus Christ, we know that Jesus Christ, that the calendar date, uh, if I remember right, uh, Caesar, no, I don't want to say Caesar, uh, Julius Sextus Africanus, if I remember right. I did a study on this a couple years ago. Um, Julius Sextus Africanus, if I have my name properly, he was the man who was charged with or took it upon himself to track back the birth of Christ. And he's often, you know, through history, we know, we know now that it was about, you know, four to six, uh, BC in which Christ was really born. However, when he, when we, when we're creating the, the calendar as we know it today, Julius Africanus was uh, he tracked it uh, and he came up with uh, that Jesus Christ was in fact born by our calendar standard in 0 AD or 1 AD, however you'd like to go with that. And so with that being said, um, this, he's, he's taken this and however you want to go with that, that's completely irrelevant. But we know from that calendar date and we know from historical records Jesus was truly born around 4 to 6 BC. It's really around the same time period. So we track that back. We're in a year as of now, uh, two, uh, 2020, 2020. Our date, our calendar is is um, placed in, a, in as a fixed point to the birth of Jesus Christ. So we go back 2020 years. And then from that point on, from the birth of Jesus Christ, all the way back through the genealogies, you have... Um, you have two different genealogies, and this is important. You have one in Matthew that gives one account, um, and it goes from Abraham forward in time to Joseph. And it is believed that this is the bloodline of Joseph. And then we have a different account, an alternate account, which seems to have some discrepancies. 
um, by comparison, and Luke chapter three, which gives the which gives a different bloodline, and it goes backwards. Now, there's some questions as far as how these contradict or what the issue is, but it is believed this is option one. Option one says that this is what's going on here. Abraham to Joseph is, in fact, Joseph's bloodline. And Luke chapter 3, from uh, what it says, is Joseph going backwards, is uh, another bloodline. However, uh, we have uh, another option. And I think these kind of could relate. I can't really give you a, a specific example. Um, I don't know this certain aspect of Jewish customs too well. Um, but option two gives us, uh, it is uh, theorized that it gives us a royal bloodline of David. Joseph belongs through a Leverite marriage, which what that is, is a brother of a man who died. In other, in other words, Joseph, the idea is that Joseph may have had a brother, but the theory is that he had a brother who died, and through the Leverite marriage, Joseph um, was permitted to marry the widow because the widow never had any children. So they would take on that task to provide the next generation. However, I think there's really not too much issues behind. Uh, there's not too much we can go on with that. I think if, if Mary was a widow, um, I think we might have historical records for that. Um, so I don't personally believe in that aspect. However, I think I do see it's possible. And again, there's probably a more scholarly answer which you could find why one why uh, Matthew records from Abraham to Joseph with one line, and then why Luke chapter three records another line going backwards from the same man Joseph, all the way back to Adam. So there's more information on that, and I would encourage you to check that out. Um, however, uh, we said that the second theory is that uh, David is, or that Matthew records the, the royal bloodline. And then Luke re records the actual family. So that's another theory. Regardless of what happened, regardless of which one, um, regardless of which one of these theories, which one of these views, one of the things we need to consider is the Hebrew culture was very, very particular when it comes to records. Uh, of all kinds. You know, we know this straight from the scriptures. We've got... Uh, uh, a huge amount of historical information and I believe it wasn't until about 200 years ago we really didn't have too much information however archaeology begins to uh, discover uh, different elements of time of past history all of which have been not all I'm sorry not all of it but uh, most of it I can't say that either I don't have numbers in front of me but there is historical information there's historical discoveries Artifacts that have been discovered, which go to affirm the events that are recorded within the scriptures. So we can use that to justify that the events in the scripture, in fact, are true. And if one of them is true, then more should be true. Even if we don't have evidence for it, it's possible that it is true. So, and this uh, is very important because um, when we're when we're explaining scripture, when we're understanding scripture we should be very sure not we should not take scripture for example genesis and bring it to our modern day understanding much like we do much like uh, could be done with the rest of the scriptures i think a very popular one is um you is taken out of context but it's a modern idea 
that's been manipulated to justify righteousness, well, you shouldn't judge. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not lest he be judged. Only God can judge me. However, the problem with that is, again, you know, that's the modern belief of that. But the biblical belief, if we go back in time, is really, that's not at all what it says. It says, don't judge hypocritically. So, um, we got to go back to the Bible, go back to its understanding, rather than bringing it up to us to pick it apart to justify certain elements that we have going on in today's society. So, um, it is important when interpreting scripture that we understand how the writer meant it to be. Now, when we look at the accounts of the records, when we look at the records of the timeline, the bloodline, the genealogies, we find that there is 4,000 year period. Keep in mind, from the time of Jesus Christ to the time we're in now, that's about, well, as of now, about 2020, 2026, if you want to be a little bit more accurate, from the birth of Christ. But uh, these genealogies, while we already have the time 2,000 years back to Jesus Christ, these genealogies start with Jesus, or, or you know, start with Abraham, depending on where you're wanting to go, how you want to go with this. And it goes all the way back to Adam. The first account, starting with Jesus, is we have Jesus to Zerubbabel which is 584 years. Now, I want you guys to write these down if you want to verify my numbers. Um, you're more than welcome to. 584 years from Jesus to a man named Zoro Babel. I'm, I'm pronouncing that awkwardly for those of you who might be listening to the recording. Zoro Babel. Zoro Babel. And uh, from Jesus to him is 584 years. And then we have an additional 416 years. I'm sorry, that first number, I think I pronounced that wrong. 584 years was Jesus to Zerubbabel. Now, the second one is from Zerubbabel to David is 416 years. And then from David on back to the call of Abraham, we have... 917 years from Abraham going backwards to the flood we have another 426 years and then finally from Noah all the way back to Abraham we have another 1657 year period and if you were to add all of these numbers up, this genealogy time period, and again, we know that some of these would overlap because people didn't die and the next person was born. But if you uh, add up the genealogies of such person was so many years when such and such person died, you can have a grand total of 4,000 years. So... Genealogies do, in fact, support that the earth itself is approximately 6,000 years. And I was looking at this, and I did a quick Google. Um, I did not find the full answer of what I was looking for. It's like my commentary notes, and I trust these notes. Uh, in fact, I trust the information I found online. Um, genealogies go to support that the earth is about 6,000 years old. However, if the... Um, uh, where was I getting at here? 
Oh, there's also there's also claims that it could be as old as 10,000 years. Now, I was trying to figure out how that can come into play. My best theory, again, this is, this is not something I could find, was that there might be some uh, artifacts of uh, recorded time that would go back further. Uh, in fact, there's one, um, there's one I did find. Uh, the Sumerian Suniform, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, is dated about 5000 B.C., now, if the earth is only 4,000 years old from the time of Jesus, then there's a problem there because there's another 1,000 years we're adding on to that. So, um, there is 4,000, there's another 1,000 years added. So, it is possible. Um, that does not really change much of anything because we have, um, I mean, there's a huge difference between 10,000 years and there's also a difference between millions of years. Now, another thing that I want us to take into consideration is the phases. The idea, and I'm not going to go too much into this, but there's a huge problem with this as well. The phase idea is that the, um, you know, that each day, this is what old earth creations would say, is that each one was a phase. In fact, I think I'm actually getting ahead of myself. I am. I'm going to stop right there. But one of the things I found... And I'm going to have to read this article to you guys. For those of you who are watching this video, um, this is fairly, uh, it's probably a page, about a page and a half. I'm looking at my notes here. And I want to read this because I think this is very important um, for us to understand. I actually did try to chop it up a little bit to give you a Cliff Notes version. Um, however, by chopping it up, I really didn't feel the information justified itself. So this is partial information from the article. However, it's not as partial as I was hoping to accomplish. So here's what this article says. This is referred to radiometric dating. I don't think I have a piece on this. Um, no, the next piece is uh, order of creation, which we'll get to that here in a moment. But this article, here's, um, here's the chopped up version, the Cliff Notes version, um, referring to retrometric, ret radiometric dating. And the question is, is it trustworthy? Radiometric dating is the... Um, the the uh, the art or the science and how they date um, elements of the Earth. Here's what we have in this argument. So scientists, generally speaking, use observational science to measure the amount of the daughter element within a rock uh, sample to determine the present obser observable decay rate. Observational science is basically under, looking at and understanding how whatever you're whatever you're referring to is responding today, it is something that you can observe. Um, dating methods must also rely on other kinds of science called historical science. Historical science cannot be observed, and these are events in the past that happened in the past that you don't you see that something happened, but you don't know exactly how it happened. Uh, it determines the conditions of the present rock or the present when a rock first formed can only be studied through historical science. Determining how the environment might have affected a rock uh, also falls under historical science. Neither condition is directly observable. Since radioisotope dating uses both types of science, we can't directly measure the age of something. Um, we can use scientific techniques to, to in the present, combined with the assumption about historical events to estimate the age. Therefore, there are several assumptions that must be made in isotope radioisotope dating, and I'm going to call this isotope dating from this time on. 
Three critical assumptions can affect the result during isotope dating. Number one, the, the initial condition of the rock samples are accurately known. So this is something that uh, needs to be known for a proper uh, dating. Um, and it's even the assumption that it is uh, accurately known. Number two, it says the amount of the parent or daughter element uh, is uh, in a sample has not been altered by the process of another radioactive decay. Now, one of the things I've learned about radiometric dating is, well, one, everything everything has an amount of radioactive energy it's emitting. And that's something that they use. And one of the elements that was in this article referring to uranium and lead. Um, uranium, uh, once the decay of the uh, radioactivity decays to a certain point, it becomes uh, what we know as lead. So um, this would be the parent element that they were using as an illustration. Uh, and then the, the daughter element would be lead. So you have to measure the decay rate of the radioactivity to, dis to discern um, how long ago uh, this thing existed. Um, so number three here, and another critical assumption that can affect the results. Number three is the decay rate or the half-life of the parent isotope has remained constant since the rock was formed. These are some of the things that need to be made known. That the conditions of the rock are accurately known or unchanged, in reference to the, the third one, and that they have not been altered. There has been no sort of element, no sort of force that may have manipulated the, um, that may have manipulated the decay rate to slow it down or speed it up. So, a rock sample from a newly formed 1986 lava dome from Mount St. Helen was dated using potassium-argon dating. A newly formed rock gave ages for the different minerals in it. In it, in this, you know, one rock given this this specific kind of dating method, a newly formed rock, one rock or multiple rocks from the same location, gave ages. Uh, for the mineral in uh, different in a uh, that from or from between 0.5 to 2.8 million years. These dates show the significant argon um, that, that the show that significant argon, which is the daughter element, was present when the rock solidified. And with, with this being true, that uh, assumption one would be false. The initial conditions are not accurately known. Now, um, what's interesting about this is in 1977, a group of eight researchers came together known as the RATE team, otherwise known as the uh, Radioisotopes in the Age of the Earth. So they've come together um, to the, we know that they, it does not always work. They came together and they set out to investigate the assumptions commonly made in standard isotope dating practices also referred to as single sample radioisotope dating. Their findings were significant and directly impacted the evolutionary dates of millions of years. Now, Mount, I don't even know how to pronounce that. There's a mountain which is located in uh, North Island of New Zealand and is one of the country's most active volcanoes. 11 samples were taken from solidified lava and dated these rocks are known to have formed eruptions in 1949, 54, and 1975. 
the rocks were sent to the respected to a respected commercial laboratory uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The ages of the rocks that they grabbed that they collected ranged from 0.27 to 3.5 million years old. Because these rocks are known to be less than 70 years old, I mean, we know this because of the um, the eruption, so they, they grabbed them recently. Uh, however, they are believed, you know, the, the dating, they know that they were only about 70 years old. The dating itself is pulling about all up to 3.5 million years. So there's a huge is issue with that. Um, it is apparent that assumption one, again, is false. Assumption one being that the condition of the rock sample are accurately known. When isotope dating fails to give accurate dates on a rock's known age, why should we trust it for rocks of unknown age? So they knew the age of the rock in which they pulled from the lava uh, debris, and um, they're pretty much saying, it's like, we know the age, but we want you to figure out what the age is. So they've known that the age of uh, this rock dating is greatly, greatly inflated. It's 70-year-old piece of rock, and yet it's being dated at millions of years old. There's a problem with that. Again, the rate team uh, selected two locations to collect rock samples to conduct an analysis using radioisotope dating methods. Multiple methods. Um, both sites undertook, understood by geologists to date from the Precambrian period, which is supposedly between 550, 541 million years and 4,600 million years ago. The two sites closely were bare, er, chosen were Beartooth Mountains in northwest Wyoming in Yellowstone National Park and Bass Rapids Sill in the central portion of Arizona. So we're getting one from Miami and we're getting some from Arizona. All rock samples, um, whole, what does it say here? Whole rocks and separate minerals within the rocks were analyzed using four radioisotope methods. Um, and these include uh, isotope uh, potassium argon, rubidium strontium, if I'm pronouncing that right, and a couple other methods I can't even pronounce. And in order so that the, the um, research group would not be considered being biased in their analysis, they did not study these rocks. They sent them elsewhere. They sent them to a different location to avoid being biased in any of their procedures. So in order to avoid uh, any bias, the dating procedures were contracted out to commercial laboratories located in Colorado, Massachusetts, Ontario, and Canada. In other words, they hired a third party to do the work. Beartooth Mountains, the one in Wyoming near Yellowstone, the results were significantly scattered in the ages of various minerals also between the isotope dating methods. In some cases, the whole rock ranged in as uh, greater than the age between the minerals. Uh, uh, the reserve, uh, the reverse occurs. The potassium occur. The potassium argon minerals results vary between 1,500 to 2,600 million years. There's a difference of about 1,100. There's 1,100 million year difference, and this is the variation dates between the different uh, places of study. There's a huge problem. It's like okay. We can't trust this information. We don't know how old it is. Now, uh, another location that they, uh, the Arizona Grand Canyon location, Bass Rapids Sill, this information of rocks 
The rate uh, result, the rate group uh, results differ considerably from the generally accepted uh, 1,100. I'm sorry, 1,070 million years. That's the generally accepted dating. Especially noteworthy is multiple whole rocks of potassium argon uh, isochron age of eight. 841.5 million years, while another way of dating um, gives 1,370 or 1,379 million years. This gives us a difference of 570 or 537 million year gap between the datings. Which one is true? Now I can understand if there's tens, uh, you know, 10, 20. 100 or even like a five, you know, 300 to 500 year gap, or even like a couple thousand years. But we're talking millions. We're talking millions and millions of years going by with these different dating periods. This is by far not the most exact piece of information in which you can give. Can we trust the, the millions of years radiometric datings? No, we cannot. The order of creation. This is important too when it comes to the day age. We're uh, running short on time. I'm gonna hope uh, and hopefully we can get through this all within an hour's time. We might go over a few minutes as well. The order of creation is very important when we understand it as well. First off, we have day one. God created light. He created darkness, or He separated the light from the darkness. He declared it. Let there be light. And there is day, and there is evening, and there is morning on that day. And then the second day, he creates the sky, separating the waters from the waters. The waters that are on the earth, pulling that apart, separating that from the waters in the sky. Day three, he creates the sea, he creates the land, the plants, and the trees. He creates, on day four, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And on day five, he creates the sea creatures and the birds of the air and each individual event. There was evening and there was morning on the first day. Each day is, uh, if, if we want to take this consideration that it is in fact a day, age, thousands or millions of years, both of these ideas would work. Um, within this ex within this excuse in which I'm giving, uh, or within this justification, however you want to word it. If we want to take that as thousands or millions of years, there comes a problem of reproduction. As we see here, on the third day, the plants and the trees are made. And it isn't until day five, where the creatures of the sea and the birds of the air are created. And I believe the insects are there as well. The problem is, we need to rely on self-pollination in order for this to take place. Reproduction becomes the problem. If these creatures were created on, or if the light, plant life was created on day three and the forms of wildlife not until day five, then we need to rely on self-pollination as the excuse as far as how this could exist. But then we also rely on a problem, the sunlight. There is no sunlight for these plants. There is no moon. There is no stars. They exist in darkness outside of the glory of God shining upon them, which could in fact be 
that this is the source of light and which is flourishing, making these plants flourish. However, we do not see um, so much self-pollination taking place. We do have uh, self-pollinating plants that exist today. However, if this was in fact a millions of years concept, then we would in fact see more self-pollinating plants existing. What happened was, there's a couple different elements taking place here. And this by far is, is really where, for me, this is where on day six, the land animals um, and the man and woman were created, of course. But um, what's interesting about this is creation itself really goes to show there's an intimacy behind uh, all of this. Now, if we go back, I want us to look at this real quick. Let's bring this up on a full view. We have day three. We have, well, day one, light and darkness. Sky on day two, the separating of the waters. And here's the significant piece. This is really where I saw amazement. This is really where it began to give value and I began to think about this more. On day three, God is creating the seas. He's separating the lands. He's digging holes. He's digging trenches. He's making mountains. In this 24-hour period, he's planting plants and trees. This is what he's doing. And it's not until day five when the sea creatures and the birds of the air are, are happening. And the, day two, you have the skies, as I said. But what's really significant behind this, this is, is, is what brings up the intimate relationship between God and his creation. God is preparing the ground in a cos in his, of his cosmic garden. And he's preparing it and he's planting seeds. Creation not only shows the personal relationship God has with the universe, but it also shows that there's a blueprint in which God is preparing, God is laying out for everything else to be created. The first piece. The first piece here is the divine creative word. This is his intimate relationship. The divine created word. God makes the declaration. God says, let it be. He says, this is what I want. Make it happen. And the next words we see is what we would call the divine fulfillment. And in the divine fulfillment, the cosmos bend to his will. His voice of authority comes into play and God says, let it be. And they say, it is so. And then finally here, I think this one's really, really, this one's really beautiful. I think, that, you know, this is really one I've got a little bit more detail to give you. I was thinking more about this, um, these next two, actually. And this one here, this, the, the next step we have is the divine, the divine blessing in which God gives a unique identity to his creation. He names it. He creates the sky, he creates the birds, he creates the life, he creates the sea, he creates the land, and he says, I'm going to call you land, and this is how you're going to be separated. I'm going to call you sea, I'm going to call you the waters, and this is how you're going to be separated. Not only that, but this is what your divine purpose is. Water. You're going to flourish, you're going to, um, you're going to feed the ground. 
You're going to feed the ground and the ground. Well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to feed the plants. I want you to feed the crops, the plants, the trees, the flowers, the grass, everything. I want you to feed this. This is your role. This is who you are. This is your unique identity. This is how you fit into my divine plan. He gives it uniqueness. He gives it a purpose. He gives it identity. Setting each individual element of creation apart from the rest. And through this, we see that God called. That's the divine blessing. That's the divine name. The creative word, let it be. The fulfillment, let it be so, or it was so. The divine blessing that God called. And then finally, we get into the divine commendation. Now, I thought this one was really wonderful. This, uh, this here, we see that the Lord said, and it was good. It was good. In day, uh, day two, day two, it was good. And let's, let's read this here in verse nine. Uh, it said, "Let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear." And it was so. And then God called the dry land earth, and He, uh, uh, the water that was gathered there, He called the seas. And God saw that it was good. It was good. It was satisfying to him. And then finally here, referring to the it is good concept, um, the creating of plant life. And this is on the same day, if I uh, recall correctly. Yes, yes, this is on the same day. It is good. He calls the, the plant life that is created, the, the earth brought forth, this is in verse 12, brought forth vegetation, plant yielding according to their kinds, trees bearing fruit according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. It is good. Because it's got a really good purpose. The seas and the land are going to provide nourishment for the various things. You have the plant life, which is going to provide nourishment. And then finally, the last account, uh, two more accounts, that it was good. Separating the day and the night, the stars. He says, it is good. And then finally, creating the land animals and the beast and man according to their kind. Or not man, not man just yet but creating the animal life. He says that it is good. I, I think this is really wonderful, and, and we'll get more into this here in the next piece. Um, but this is, the, this is God, is, 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 he's created his garden. This is how I see it here. He, he, he comes in, and he, he creates. And then finally, the commendation after each thing in which he creates, and he looks back on his creation. This is good. This is good. Saying, I've done a good job here. This is beautiful. This is wonderful. This is amazing. The divine schedule is the last thing we have. God takes a break. One, he's doing this within each day. Each individual day, he does a certain task in creating. And then there's the transition. There was evening and then there was morning. And then so, and it's really interesting. I, I would say honestly, that's how God worked. Um, I, probably in the twelve-hour period, if there's evening and there's morning. I mean, I, it's not not necessarily exact. You can take that He worked all those twenty-four hours, and that this is simply referring to a day period. Okay, He's done this from twelve o'clock in the morning, twelve o'clock at night. So, 
then he's going on to the next. Or you can take uh, eight, you know, eight to ten hours of daylight, whatever you have there, and say that God worked in this time period, and then he took a break. I think that's also a plausible idea. I think it's possible, and I would personally believe that myself, because if there's evening, the the sun setting, and then there's a morning. There's the there's the pause in his creation and the beginning, the start of his next creation. So I think God is is taking a temporary break on this, probably even to set the set the standard. This is probably what's going into the blueprint. I did not provide these notes on our next slide. But he's allowing for the transition of time. There was evening, and then there was morning the next day. And then finally here. This, with this intimate relationship that God is, is providing. Let's go back to that and, and recap. First, we have his creative word. He's making the declaration. He's, he's fulfilling this. He's, he's blessing this. Divine blessing, divine commendation, and the divine schedule. And, and I don't want to stress too much on this because I'm going to allude with this a little bit more in these next few slides. But we have the divine blueprint. All throughout creation, God acted, God created, God declared, and God smiled upon his creation. He said, this is good. But we have the divine blueprint for how we individuals are to work as well. And I want us to step back. I want us to bring the, the creation of the cosmos into a worldly level, into worldly understanding. We know that God exists outside of time. We know that he's not bound by our laws of physics, of, of thermodynamics, of, of, of any sort of scientific laws regarding creation, regarding the universe. He's not bound by those. He exists outside of that. He is infinite. He is all-powerful. But if we bring this to our, a worldly illustration, then we see that God is stepping out of his home, wherever he's at, and he's walking over to this garden. It doesn't even exist yet. He goes over to this plot of land, this, this area in which he wants to build, and he says yes. I know what I'm going to do. Step one, or even day one, I'm going to refer them from steps from this point on, but they are uh, days in which I'm seeing here. These are the days in which I'm referring to. Step one for this blueprint of design, the creator comes in and he makes his presence known. Christ himself or God the Father is the light of the world. He is the glory, the splendor that we will see in heaven. There will be no nighttime. Because his glory will be that illumination. But he comes onto the scene and he makes his presence known. Let there be light. I am here. He makes his presence known within his. And he says, yeah, this is, this is what I'm going to do. He's already thought it out. It's already, it's already in, his, in his mind. He simply has to act it out. Now in step two, for this divine blueprint... Creating the sky and separating the waters. What he's doing is setting a fixed border within the confines that he's going to create. And when I say that, I'm not saying he's limited to just earth. But I'm saying from his realm of existence to our universe. Our universe is his confines. He's going to work within this universe. He sets these borders. And much like when you're, when you're planting a garden... 
or even designing a computer, which I'll share with you in a minute, this analogy. But when you're designing a garden, you set the boundaries. You put up the fence, whatever it is. I'm going to, you know, this entire area here, this is going to be. And then he creates this, this, this garden. He starts to till the ground. He starts to till the ground and, and, and separate, uh, separate it, make it rich, make it fertile. Day three, creating the sea. So he's watering the ground, watering the ground, and he's sorting the the dirt. He's he's digging holes. He's digging trenches. He's he's building mountains. He's making areas in which this is where the water is going to flow from. This is what's going to happen, and then up here there's going to be uh, a barrier from the waters. We don't need too much water or else we're going to drown the, the plant life. But if we have too little, then we're going to suffocate the plant life or dehydrate the plant life. And then he also plants the trees, plants the flowers of the grass uh, and everything else that you can possibly think of, all the plant life and trees. He's providing the basic provisions of all biological life, organic life. The plant life, the waters, and the land to roam on. And then finally with uh, day three, this is when that's all taking place, providing the, the provisions of all life. He's planting, he's gardening at this point in time, and then day four, you need a heat source. You need to you need to put lights in your garden. There needs to be some sort of illumination. And we know today we already have the sun, so we can't exactly bring in a new light source. Um, but the analogy here is important, I think, uh, being that excuse me, being that he is God. I would say, um, you know, as far as illustration goes, from the beginning of time or from the beginning of creation, he is the source of light. But keep in mind, it's only been three days, so there's not really too much issue with a lack of. But he's uh, providing, but he knows it's like, okay, I'm going to step back from creation. I'm going to be done here in a few days. I'm almost done, so let's go ahead and start now. Let's put this light source in here, this illumination. And this is very important here because that the, the creation of this illuminated source and what he does here is he's creating the moon, he's creating the sun, he's creating the stars, all of which will sing to his glory. He creates this because this needs to be done on day four. Why? Because on day five, we create animals. The consumer, the plantation, we're providing the source of nutrients. Now we need to provide the source of warmth. Outside of God, that source must be some other device in which he creates the sun and he creates the moon for light at night. So these are created. Day five is the consumer of the plants, these uh, the wildlife, the animals, the creatures of the sea. These are the, the, the birds of the air. And then finally, on day five, he, can, he creates an additional amount of consumers, land animals, which will... Uh, at, after the flood, of course, begin to consume other animals. They will consume the fish of the sea, the little um, microscopic bacteria. The um, the water will be used for the 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 um, uh, the nutrients, the the cooling down, all sorts of variations. So these things need to come into preparation first before we add the life.
But then most importantly, on day six, he creates the caretaker. Man and woman, he creates them and, and gives them dominion. It's not that they're in charge and that they can create too, but that they're in charge of taking care of the ground. Rule over this. Work with me or work for me. And then the analogy I want to give with this, if you haven't seen it already, I was uh, preparing these notes yesterday um, when this really came to my mind. A computer analogy, I thought this would be best fit. We're a little going over on time right now. We're almost done. Um, but we have the computer, uh, computer analogy. Um, I mess with computers a little bit. But we have a little bit of um, a computer analogy here. Day one. He's making his presence known. This is also the decision to design a computer, the decision to build. And then finally, like we said, in day two, setting the parameters or the boundaries in which he's going to work or getting the, or saying, okay, this is the money I'm going to spend on this. This is the materials I'm going to use. And then finally, day three, provisions of all life. Or another analogy would be to install the basic hardware inside of a computer or any other device in which you have. Day four, well, we need a source. We've already built. We've already built the computer. We've put the motherboard in. We've. Uh, I'm looking over here. It's been a while since I put a computer together. We put the motherboard in. We put the graphics card in. We've put the memory card in, um, but we do not have a power supply. So we've got to install that power supply, and we've got to plug that into the wall, and make sure it all works, make sure it does its job. That's what we have on day four. Day four is the uh, the power supply. Number five here, day five, is the installation of basic programs and operating systems. We need these in order for any of this to work or any of it to function properly. And then finally, after this, in day six, they're adding the additional programs for the user to um, be able to use. And we're getting it prepared for the consumer to have dominion and control over this. And at this point in time, we're giving this creation, this created computer over to the consumer. And then finally, now that we've created creation, now that we've made our creation, we can look back and we say, this is very good. This is very good. I give this to you. Now don't screw it up, which we have in day seven, uh, which I apparently didn't put the notes on here. God takes a break. Or in our analogy, he stops creating computers, he stops building that computer, and let's pray and hope nothing breaks, and let's hope that they don't put any viruses on this thing. <laughs> which, of course, we know a couple days later, or a couple hundred years, however, whatever time period in which this happened, Adam and Eve did, of course, fall. But the last piece I want to close up with, this is the last, and then we're going to be done here, is the biggest question, why did God rest? This was to really set the blueprint. This was to, to make the day holy, make it, make it set it apart. You know, God has spent six days creating the entire cosmos. And he took a break, not because he needed to. There's a couple ways in which we can take this. One, he took a break from creating. That is his break. That is his rest. He stopped creating. But he didn't rest as if, as if saying that I'm done working. And if we take this as millions and millions of years then I would say, really, that we need to do the same thing. If, if God worked for such and such millions of years and rested for another million of years, then we too need to do the same thing. We need to work for millions of years, and then we, we need to rest for millions of years. But this is six literal days. This is 24-hour periods of time. 
God set the blueprint of, of creating. He set the blueprint of working. For six days you will work the soil. Let me actually get that wording out. Um, I don't think, uh, no, that's actually, I don't have that open. That's in Exodus. So uh, we'll not worry about that just yet. We'll get back to that in our uh, one of our next studies. But he rests in chapter 2, uh, verse 1 through 3. Here's what it says. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finally finished, and the host of them, uh, and all the hosts, all those who uh, roamed within the land, and all of its hosts, and on the seventh day God finished all his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day, and he blessed him. Verse 3 says, He blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Holy being that he set it apart, made it unique, made it special. Why is this special? Because Monday through Saturday, or, or Sunday through Friday, however you want to do that, He's working the ground. He's laboring. And then there's one day out of the week in which God is taking a break. And he sets that example knowing that if he doesn't, if he continues to work on the seventh day, then the cycle's going to continue. Okay, God worked for seven days. There's seven days in a week. God worked for seven days. He, he didn't take a break. Well, that must mean we should because we're not better than he is. We don't deserve a break. God didn't take a break, so we don't deserve a break. But he took a break to set that standard. He set the break. He took a break from creation to say, I'm done working. Now I want you to take a break. I want you to work for six days and then on the seventh day, take a break. I don't want you to do any hard labor. He's not exhausted. He simply stopped. He stopped creating. Let me get those slides up there. I went through that already. He declares the day to be holy. He sets the task, the task of creation. The task of creation has been accomplished. He's done working. And by doing such, he's setting the standard of man to take a break. I really hope you guys gained some value out of this. I thought this was very wonderful, very unique. Um, this specific study, I, I'll admit, when I, was, I said, when I was putting these notes together, creation itself gained more value for me than what it previously had and and I, I i can't even begin to fathom i can't even begin to express how wonderful and glorious and amazing it was to come with this understanding so that's all i have for uh, you all today and i hope you gained some insight uh, if you have any questions or comments or concerns uh, let me know get a hold of me and uh, I'd be more than happy to discuss my thoughts or answer any questions that you might have. But going on in this, we're going to get into uh, further on in Genesis as we continue this study. And it's going to be a wonderful study. I'm already excited to, to share these with you. And I hope you guys enjoy these as well. So um, without further ado, that's really all I have. And I want to wish you all a wonderful and blessed week.